This Snap Judgment podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. You know, the holidays are almost here. No one has time to go to the post office. There's traffic, there's the parking, and it's packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So, use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. It's easy and convenient. Plus, Stamps.com will give you a digital scale. It automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package. Print the postage directly onto your envelopes, labels, even plain paper. Then, just hand your mail to your mail carrier or pop it in the mailbox. With Stamps.com, you'll never have to go to the post office again. And right now, there's a special offer for listeners of the Snap Podcast. A no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SNAP. That's Stamps.com, enter SNAP, and happy mailing. Okay, so it was the first day of a new job. And right away, I knew things were just a little bit off. There were four of us crammed into a tiny space. And this itty-bitty office had four cubicle dividers. The office was quiet, real quiet. Nobody said a word. And on my first day, I sat there until the telephone rang. Hello? Hello. It was my boss, who was one cubicle over. I stood up and watched her speaking to me on the phone. Uh, Glenn, I'm going to need you to review some documents. They'll be delivered to you soon. I hung up the phone. She was right there. I was baffled. But then, a document processor came to the office... He took some documents from her desk. For a moment, he looked confused as well. Then he handed the papers to me. These are for you. And he left. And he was quiet again. Now within our foursome, there's my boss, the senior manager, and the regular manager. And sometimes, they did not get along. Their backs were to each other. But instead of simply swiveling their chairs around and hashing their disagreements out, they took to having loud arguments with each other over the telephone. I'm the senior manager. I've had more experience. It was straight wacky. And one day, I arrived at work, nodded to my boss, a senior manager, sat down at my cubicle, and I saw a blinking light on my phone. I had a message. The message was from the senior manager. She said she needed to talk to me right away. I called her. Hello? Hello? Is everything okay? No, everything is not okay. We need to discuss your performance. My performance? I will give you a personal review at my earliest convenience. So I waited. And I waited. Days went by. No one delivered any more papers to my desk. And I was decidedly not a party to the inter-office telephone communications. At the end of two weeks, my phone rang. I stood up to make sure it was actually her calling the senior manager. She held a phone next to her ear. I waved at her. She ignored me. I let the phone ring. It kept on ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And finally, for the first time, she stood up and shouted, You have a phone call. Oh. She was brief. Your services will no longer be required. 
inspired phone call when the boss was just seven feet away. Well, today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX NPR, we proudly present J-O-B. J-O-B. Stories about the passion and the pain of the daily grind. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Growing up, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I got older, I never answered because I didn't want to jinx it. But deep in my heart, deep in my soul, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. The Minister of Information for Public Enemy. Because he got to hang out on stage with Chuck D and Flavor Flav, and he didn't even have a guitar. He didn't sing. All he did was glare at fools. And I thought that was the life for me. But barring that, I figured being a rock star would suffice. I would just have to buckle down and learn an instrument. And everything would be all set. I later discovered that the grass is often greener on the other side of the fence. My name is Paul Sanchez. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a singer, a songwriter, a storyteller, and a racketeer. I started singing when I was five years old, and somebody asked me once why I started. My father died when I was five, and we had 11 kids in the house. I think that the sound of a little boy's voice singing was much prettier than a house full of people crying, and I got encouraged to do so. I'll see you there. My whole life, singing made me feel connected, whole. I was in a rock band. All of our friends, like Better Than Ezra and Hootie and the Blowfish, all got famous. And we were almost famous. My wife Shelly and I met 19 years ago. She was actually a fan, and uh, she claims that she stalked me. We went out in January on our first date, and in July we were married. I never thought anything would matter as much to me as playing music until I fell in love with Shelly. She showed me that music was a reflection of life. It wasn't all of life. She was our tour manager. She came on the road. She drove the van. She lugged gear. She really earned her keep out there. And the trade-off was that we got to see the world together. She traveled to Europe with me. We've been around the country so many times. But Shelly and I used to always say to each other, we got to grab these moments. We looked at it as a way of retiring when we were young. We figured we'd just get jobs when we were older and see the world together when we were young. Then the flood happened in Hurricane Katrina. The house was underwater. The house that her grandfather built that her mother was raised in. Our home and our possessions and everything we had were taken from us. I'd left the band I was in. I found out I wasn't going to see any of the money for the songs I'd written for the 15 years I was in the band. And I hustled gigs where I could to keep going. She got a job in the film business, working as a set dresser. And I thought, this is as tough as life could get. But you know, in our 20 years together, I'm 12 years older than her, and in our 20 years together, it never once dawned on me that I would outlive Shelley, that I would have to suffer the indignity about living the person who gave me a reason to be alive. And in April, she, uh, she got the diagnosis that she had breast cancer. For the first two days, all I could hear was a roaring sound in my ears. I couldn't hear anybody talking to me. I felt like a fool for dragging her around the world. I dragged her through stuff that dudes only experience. Nobody brings their wife on the road for 14 years, and no girl that I ever met could take it. These guys don't know how to wipe a toilet after themselves in the bus. These guys are disgusting. They fart and belch, and it's, how do you do this? And she did it because she wanted to be with me. All that came 
into focus and, and I realized that she had given me 20 years of unconditional love to pursue my dreams. And that was my turn to give her the unconditional love and pursue her health and our happiness. We didn't know how long the treatment was going to be. We didn't know if she'd have to undergo chemo. So Shelly pointed out that if she was out of work for too long, we would both lose our medical benefits. It was a primal thing within me. I couldn't articulate. I went mad. I was so frightened. I made a secret deal with the universe that I didn't tell anybody about, not even her. I promised the universe that I would give up the thing that I loved most if I could keep the person I loved most. So I canceled every gig I had and I looked for any job I could get. I called a buddy of mine who owns a furniture supply company. I said, I can't go on the road anymore, Shelly's sick. And before I could say anything else, he said, when can you start? And he said, I'll take care of your medical benefits as well. It was very difficult to go to work for the first time in 20 years. It was the first time that we hadn't spent 24 hours a day together. Having this job, I pulled away trying to be brave, but I would be so sad and I would, I cry, I cry a little bit. I miss her so much and I would put on the iTunes and I'd just put my own songs on. And that's what I would listen to on the way to work and on the way home from work every day for the first month because I was so shell-shocked at having a job. I chased away all of the badness Forgotten most of the sadness There's this thing musicians have about if you're a professional musician, having a job, there's this like stigma. I'm just as guilty of that idiotic prejudice as any musician. But also there was the fear that Am I going to be any good at this? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, that was the hardest thing was showing up every day and just, I, it had been 20 years since I was bad at my job. You know, I was really good at what I did and I really enjoyed it. And I really didn't enjoy being the worst person at the job in the office. After working the job for a few months, I have a much healthier respect. These people work eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week to buy a few minutes of time with the woman they love or the man they love. Your time is precious when you're working all those hours. And the fact that people were willing to give their two hours of their evening to me to listen to my songs means so much more now that I know how hard that is every day to discipline yourself, to get to sleep, to show up focused and upbeat for your coworkers. You work and work for years and years. You're always on the go. You never take a minute off too busy making dough. And my wife had a, a double mastectomy. They got clean margins. They didn't have to do chemo. That was the biggest relief to us both. So she, uh, she healed up. And within two months, she was back at work as a set dresser, hauling furniture, wearing her tool belt, being tough. When I first started singing and playing around the house again after her surgery, I would only do it when she was still at work on the movie. I didn't do it ever when she was home because for me, every single second that I could just be in the room with her, even if she was just making dinner, I'd just hang out in there. And, and so she never really thought to ask why I wasn't playing and singing around the house. In fact, you know, after 20 years of marriage, she was a little glad, I think. <laughs> after a while, like, she came in from work and she said, why do you stop when I come in? And I said, well, I, you know... I don't want to sing while you're home. And she, she looked at me confused, and I told her about my secret deal with the universe, and my wife is the tough guy in the family, and she just rolled her eyes and said, don't be ridiculous, just pick up your guitar and sing. I had gotten rusty, and I was a little shy about singing in front of her, but she reminded me how to sing. And she said, don't you remember what you told me once? Singing's just a conversation. It's no different than you talking to someone. So just talk to me. And she made it easy again, just like she's done my whole life. When I made that secret deal with the universe that I would stop singing and keep her in my life, eventually the answer came back from the universe. Remember, you're going to lose her and your music and your own life. So love them all while you have them. Paul Sanchez. Big hugs to both of you. We wish you health, long life, and huge thanks for sharing your story with the Snap. Now, 
Some of the music in that piece, that last song was taken from Paul Sanchez's new musical. It's called Nine Lives. We're going to have a link to Paul's work on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And when Snap Judgment, the J-O-B edition continues, someone's going to sing, someone gets hungry, and someone else has a very nice watch. When Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat continues, don't move a muscle. Rise and shine, yet another day to toss away. What does my clock display? It says eight. Now I'm late for work again, so then I dip with my pad and my pen. Step into the workplace with my work face. Wince at my time card, cause I'm scarred. Mad cause I sacrificed my day and it gets me a trifling hourly wage of 650. Maybe I should just jump up and get ill. Maybe I should let these people know they're being killed. Maybe I should try my very best to chill and get paid cause I gotta pay bills. <laughs> Hey Glenn, thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. We know you love it, but you can't only listen to Snap Judgment. There's lots of other NPR podcasts, like TED Radio Hour, hosted by Guy Raz. Now he's really good. TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, new ways to think and create. Check it out, Glenn. You might just learn something. Find it on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the J-O-B edition. Today, we're exploring that period of time where most of us spend the majority of our day. Now, for right or wrong, part of what defines a lot of people is what they do. You know, I take care of these kids or I write that comic book or whatever. And no one is more defined by what they do than the good people who make the fires go away. Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman has the story of a family legacy shrouded in flame. Jay Varner's dad was the fire chief in a small Appalachian town where everyone knew everyone. So his dad was really a local hero. Because McVeigh Town was so small um, and everybody knew each other, my dad was, was very well known. By and large, people loved my dad. People saw him as somebody who was very dedicated. One time we had a neighbor who their house caught on fire. My dad was the one rushing in to try to save Christmas presents. He would have done anything for anybody if they had needed help. And when he was a little boy, Jay would brag to the other kids when his dad's fire engine would roll by. But the truth was, he wished his dad was just a normal dad. The biggest thing that I remember about my dad when I was a kid was that he was never home. He was with the fire company. Times when he was home, I remembered that he could leave at any moment. Uh, He wore a pager on the side of his belt and we could be doing anything. We could be watching TV or playing in the yard. Once that pager went off, he jumped up, ran toward his truck, turned on the light on top, and sped off. I did feel very kind of abandoned by him, and just um, not that important to him. But not everyone in his family was a hero. His grandfather, a man named Lucky, was tall and balding. He wore a painter's uniform every day, and something about him frightened Jay. Lucky was my grandfather. I was petrified of Lucky. He was curt, cold. One time he slapped our dog, which when you're a kid and have a dog, uh, that's the last thing that you ever want to see. And it was strange because his dad, Denton, was so kind and generous to everyone. And his grandpa, Lucky, was so angry. Something wasn't right about Lucky. Jay didn't know what. But he knew that when his dad was a little boy, growing up in Lucky's house, something happened. When my dad was a child, his house caught on fire, 
Everything that they had in the house was lost. After that, the community really banded together to support Lucky and the family and helped him rebuild. They rebuilt a beautiful house, and then not long after that, that house burned down as well. Nobody was hurt in the fires, but both houses were complete losses. There were actually four fires altogether when his dad was a kid. The two houses, a nearby garage, and Grandpa Lucky's car. My grandfather's car had caught on fire. He was out fishing one day, and and when he came back, his car had mysteriously burned up while he was gone. Four mysterious fires, all shrouded in a shameful family secret. When they thought he was old enough to know, the family told Jay the truth. That Lucky, my grandfather, burned down his family's home twice. It was suspected that Lucky had set the car fire as well. Lucky had been convicted of arson. Everyone in Little McVeigh Town knew it, and now so did Jay. I suddenly felt very justified in my fear of the man. And I also felt very sad, especially for my dad. I felt that it was because of that that my dad was a fireman. He really wanted to atone for some of the sins that his father had committed. I mean, what, what better way to do that than, here's a dad who lights fires, and his son is one who goes out and extinguishes them. Serial arson is a pathology, a fascination with destruction. There are many different thoughts in terms of why arsonists light fires. But a serial arsonist, um, there's something deeply disturbed within them. I think the fire is in their makeup, in their DNA. Jay's own DNA was a strange joining of fire starter and fireman hero. He had questions for his dad about his history, about his choices and his burden, but he never got to ask him. His father died when he was nine years old of cancer. Instead, Jay had to find answers for himself. As a young man, he became a reporter for the local newspaper, covering the police and fire beat. And then his own fascination with destruction was ignited. When the alarm codes went off on the scanner during my first week, I felt exactly like my dad, rushing down the road as fast as you possibly can go to get there before anybody else. I saw the fire trucks, I saw the lights, and once I arrived on the scene, I opened my car door and I immediately smelled the smoke. And it was exactly the same smell that I would smell on my dad when he came home after fires. You get very caught up in the moment, and that adrenaline just rushes through you. I became addicted to it. I became a junkie. I looked forward to the chance of rushing out the door. And I realized that that adrenaline was there not just because of this seeking out of the truth in this story, but because I wanted to understand what made my dad tick. So he began to write a book about his family history. My mom and my grandmother found out eventually that I was writing a book about them. They took me aside on a Sunday morning, basically telling me that I could not write about this. And I didn't understand why. My mother was in tears, rocking back and forth, obviously distraught about something. Finally, they looked at each other and I knew that they had decided something and they told me, there's something you don't know about your father. They told me that my dad had helped my grandfather light some of those fires when my dad was a child. They explained that his dad had helped Lucky commit arson. The information was scattered and vague, little snapshots of scenes that they had put together, but it was the truth. They told me a story of stumbling upon Lucky and my dad playing with matches. Lucky was teaching my dad how to strike the match and toss it into a pool of gasoline. My dad had hinted to my mother only one time he ever mentioned it, that his dad had somehow coerced him into doing it. This changed the whole story. My resentment for my dad suddenly disappeared. Your father was teaching you how to light these things when you were a child. At an age when any boy would do anything that his dad asked him to do. My grandfather was taking advantage of that. I no longer held the fact that he had rushed out the door and had had missed spending so much time with our family against him. A few months after hearing that story about his dad, Jay quit his job at the paper. My last day on the job involved training my replacement at the newspaper. And luckily for us, there was a fire. When we arrived at the fire, we watched the firemen rush past us with hoses on their shoulders. They climbed into the roof and hacked the holes in the shingles 
My heart was still rattling yet. I still felt a bit of an adrenaline rush. And then a deep gray smoke poured up through the sky. And the ash and water spray, they mixed in the air and for a moment, the scene, it looked almost serene as a snow shower. There's no denying that fire and smoke and sirens, that all of these things had a tremendous pull on my father. Now that I knew where his motivations lay and what had happened to him as a child, I felt more distance with those fires because that key to unlock my dad, I now held it. Big thanks to Jay Varner for sharing your story with the snap. Jay has a new book that touches on his relationship with his father. It's called Nothing Left to Burn. A big thanks as well to Snap's own Anna Sussman. Now, sometimes it becomes apparent that it's not the thing you do the people you do it with. And a small, small minority of us have experienced the joy of having a really, really great boss. You know, the kind of boss that you don't mind staying late for, the guy you'd do anything to impress. And that's the kind of guy that Tom worked for. So the first time that I met John... I didn't know who he was, and I was new on the job, and I was fresh out of college. He uh, walked into the mail room, and I thought he was just like some other guy who worked there, because he was just like, hey, how's it going? What's your name? How are you? I thought, this can't be an executive director, because he's just so down to earth. And then, you know, when I walked into the staff meeting the next day, there he was at the head of the table, and just commanded the presence of the room like nobody else that I'd ever seen. I work at a small nonprofit, and after the financial crisis in 2008, the organization grew threefold, and it was a real source of pride for John. He had built up this organization to be this juggernaut. He was, above all, an amazing leader. There was certainly such a strong devotion to this man and his leadership that it, it was borderline holy. He drew comparisons to Jesus. <laughs> At our work, we would all be in these staff meetings and in times that were particularly difficult. He would always end the meetings by reminding us to take care of your job, take care of yourself, and take care of each other. When it really comes crunch time, that phrase kept coming back. It's so stupid how something so simple like that could really resonate. A handful of people from work were out at a bar one day just blowing off steam from another 16-hour day. We were at a karaoke bar, and John got up on stage and started to sing Radiohead's Creep. But I'm a creep. Just belts it out. It was a very emotional performance. Everybody fell silent when he went up on stage. It was this side to him that nobody had seen. But then when he was done, the place just exploded. I don't belong here. We learned very quickly that John really liked karaoke. So he had me institute this yearly karaoke night that we would do at work. They were so much fun. I would host it. John would give me song requests weeks in advance. He loved Anarchy in the UK and Squeeze, Cool for Cats. And mine was 99 Problems by Jay-Z. Am I under arrest or should I guess some more? Well, you were doing 55 in the 54. Uh-huh. Half a mil for bail because I'm African? <laughs> Don't laugh at that. And we did that for about three years about eight months ago 
It was about a week after we had had one of those karaoke parties. We found out that John had terminal cancer, and it it wasn't going to be long before he was gone. And he had known while we were all at this party and didn't want to tell any of us because he just wanted to see us have a good time. So he spent the last three months of his life kind of just trying to make sure that we would all be okay once he was gone. And then he died. I didn't really process his death right away. I put up a lot of walls. And so I kept on working, kept on doing my job as everybody else did. We all just kind of tried to keep the organization afloat. So we went for a couple months, leaderless, and then we got a new executive director. His name was William. He was the polar opposite of John. The first day when we had our first meeting with him, he said, I'm not a yeller. We learned very quickly that that was absolutely not true. (laughs) William made grown men and women who had worked there for 15 plus years break down in tears. About two months in, he was on vacation and had a stroke and died. And once again, we were leaderless. All of the optimism that we'd had at first, the we can carry on, we can do this, was gone because it seemed like we were cursed. And once again, we're coming up to that time of the year when we would be having that regular karaoke party. Everybody was still really anticipating it. People were looking for something to be happy about and something to look forward to. It's my job to host karaoke night. So I said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do it, but it's going to be the last one. And people asked why, you know, and I told them that karaoke was played out, like, let's do something different. But the truth of the matter is that it didn't make sense to do karaoke without John. So I've crossed out Creep in the songbooks just to let everybody know it's off limits. This song's retired. We've all had a few drinks and inevitably somebody comes up and asks for Creep. And I say, no, we're not going to do it. And they ask again and I say, no, we're not going to do it at all. And I see his daughter across the room who has been around a lot since his passing. And I go up to her and I ask her, they want to sing Creep. Should we do this? So she thought for a moment and then said, I think he'd like that. So I head back to my karaoke station and put on Creep. A dozen people come up and grab the microphone. And some people are belting it out. Other people are just kind of swaying in the back. Everybody knows its significance. And it was a really joyful moment for them. And you could see everyone having this catharsis that I just couldn't reach myself, that I wanted to avoid, that I'd crossed out so that it wouldn't happen. And as soon as the song was done, I just slammed my laptop shut said it's over, and went and just bawled my face out in the corner. And I don't, I don't cry. But for some reason, it all just came flooding out of me then. I'm not an emotional guy, and when, when a non-emotional person gets emotional, people can get really weirded out. But instead of leaving me by myself, people started to come up and console me and just sit with me. And all I could think about was John saying to take care of our jobs and take care of ourselves and take care of each other. We were all still taking care of each other. The organization is still standing today and it's doing better than ever. And that's the only reason that the place keeps on going because we're all taking care of each other. Much love, Tom. Much love. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. And if you like that story, let us know on the Facebook, Snap Judgment, on the Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. We love to hear from you and we'd love to have your stories. (laughs) 
You're listening to Snap Judgment. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after the break. When Snap Judgment returns, more stories from people lucky enough to still have a job. Stay tuned. gonna need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow so if you could be here around nine that would be great okay welcome back to snap judgment from prx and npr the j-o-b edition we're diving deep into that thing that people do to feed themselves my name is glenn washington And it is all well and good to love your work, to love what you do. That's fantastic. But in today's world, too many of us know what it feels like to think, I don't care what it is. I got to get a job. Doug Cordell takes Snap down Highway 5 to the city of big dreams. I moved to Los Angeles on a bright November day in 2007, landing at the airport almost to the minute when the Writers Guild went out on strike. That wasn't the plan. The plan was to escape New York, rent a sweet little place in the hills, and make some easy showbiz money. But the strike threw a wrench into things. Big payday scriptwriting gigs fell through, and I was forced to look for somewhere cheap to live. I ended up in a one-room apartment in Hollywood, in the shadow of the 101 freeway. My first night there, a water bug as big as a date scuttled across the carpet. A flashback to the Lower East Side. My new neighbors were a 40-year-old skateboard punk, an old man who wandered the halls in his bathrobe, and a haggard-looking Wonder Woman impersonator. The strike cast a pall over the whole town. Even non-guild work was hard to come by, as union writers scrambled for the low-paying animation scripts I usually survived on. Eventually, I was forced to look for a job, my first in years. At the beginning, I took a casual look-and-see approach, casting around the Internet for something interesting. But as my bank account dwindled, I adopted more of a scorched-earth strategy. I cobbled together a resume that hid the gaps in my employment history behind a razzle-dazzle of font changes and action verbs. I also squeezed references out of people I hadn't spoken to in years, a few of whom greeted my calls with a vaguely annoyed, Who is this? I sent emails in response to almost anything. Copywriter, outreach director, youth development coordinator, tutor, tour guide, assistant to the outreach director, halfway house bed monitor, crew member at Trader Joe's. After two or three weeks of this, I began to wonder if there was something wrong with my computer. Then I got a nibble from a healthcare workers union looking for a communications specialist. By then I had reworked my resume several times and I hadn't kept track of which inflated version of myself I had sent along. But after an exhausting phone grilling by a recruiting officer, I was invited for an interview. At a grim building east of downtown, I was interrogated by a series of earnest activists and union hacks. They wanted to know that I was in it for the long haul, passionate about their mission, excited about being part of the team. The thing about having no money is, you'll say anything. And I did. Over and over. I was called back for a follow-up session with an advisory board. And a few days after that, a writing test. I was spending so much time at the place, I felt as if I already worked there. Increasingly desperate about money, I even convinced myself that I really wanted the job. Maybe it'd be nice to be part of a team, I thought. Lunches with the gang, joking around the office, dental insurance. I was asked back for a final interview with the Big Cheese, the statewide head of the union. I figured it was mostly a formality at that point, that he just wanted to see that we clicked. So I laid it on thick, throwing in some regular guy banter and cracking a joke, something to establish my leftist cred when he asked me where I saw myself ten years down the road. I'm like Stalin, I said with a wink. 
I only make five-year plans. The next day, the recruiter called to say that they were going in another direction. By now, I was hand-washing clothes in the sink to put off trips to the laundromat and skipping haircuts. I found myself taking note when an item in the paper listed places where homeless people could get free meals for future reference. My back to the wall, I developed a feral alertness. I became acutely aware of everything around me and rated it all in terms of getting money. One evening, I went with a friend to a party in the Hollywood Hills. It was in honor of a young writer, the son of a famous cowboy playwright. The house wasn't enormous, but it was perched high with a $10 million view. The cowboy playwright wasn't there, but some of his contemporaries were, all of them carrying an air of hippies with money. How can I separate these people from some of their mysteriously obtained income, I asked myself. That's an original Ruche, my friend said, of a small painting on the wall by the bathroom. Really? Oh yeah, he said. I saw the painting with new eyes. What if I walked out with it, I wondered. They're all so stoned they probably wouldn't notice. I realized, though, that as the interloper at the party, I'd be the obvious suspect. My friend wandered off and I stepped into the vacant study. On shelves above the desk were the usual knickknacks, a pendulum, a crystal statuette of a dancer, silver frame photos of wrinkled villagers somewhere, and at the far end, partly hidden by an antique tobacco tin, a pocket watch, also antique, probably white gold. That was something I could easily slip into my jacket, something that wouldn't be missed for some time. I glanced over my shoulder, then gave the room another scan to see if I was missing anything better. That's when somebody grabbed my elbow. All right, let's go. What? Let's go, my friend said. If I want to get a parking spot near my house, we have to leave now. Oh, okay, I said, still rattled as he pulled me to the door. On the ride into town, I thought about the pocket watch. I knew I had no moral qualms about taking it. I realized, in fact, that the only thing that ever deterred me from crime was a fear of getting caught and the knowledge that I would not do well in prison. Not that most people do well, but I would be especially poor at it. This much I know about myself. But maybe if I could come up with something more removed, something sophisticated and intricate, a financial maneuver, perhaps, with a series of firewalls between me and the actual event. That, I admitted, I would do in a heartbeat. That night, I treated myself to cocktails in a restaurant lounge off Melrose and lingered on a story in the paper about the sketchy security of online auction sites. With the wrought iron railing and dimly lit sconces of the place, I had the feeling of being in a 1970s TV movie where the charming rogue in a wide lapel jacket sips whiskey from a tumbler and prepares to work the amoral landscape of Los Angeles on its own terms. Two days later, a producer called. He was intrigued by something I'd sent him, an idea for an episode of his long-running show, a cartoon for four-year-olds featuring an industrious repairman and his set of talking tools. My take on the material was a little off the formula, he told me. We don't want it to look like the tools have something to hide, he said. But he liked the story, thought it opened up new terrain for the show. He was willing to go forward with it, as long as I was comfortable walking a fine line between incidental misunderstanding and outright deception. I was, I told him, very comfortable. Right on, Doug Cordell. We're so happy things turned out the way they did, but I still got to keep you away from the good silver. That piece was produced by Renzo Gorio and Jamie DeWolf. Now, you're listening to Snap Judgment, the J-O-B edition, and I've got a little J-O-B recollection of my own. Okay, so I'm proud to let people know that for my first job, at a steakhouse, I rose through the ranks of the organization at top speed. Sure, I started off at the dishwasher. All the while, I had my sights set on one thing, 
the highest position I could attain, line cook. And finally, one day, I got my big chance. Chris said he needed to go to Detroit to see his girlfriend and wondered if maybe I could take over. I'm ready, Chris. Don't worry about a thing. And you might think, the biggest thing about cooking steaks in a steakhouse is cooking steaks, right? Wrong. Now, the biggest thing about heading up the army of workers dedicated to delivering your steak dinner is deciding exactly how many steaks to pull out of the freezer. Because the steaks got to thaw. And you can't get to the end of the night without enough steaks. But you can't pull too many or the manager will have you behind in the sling for food waste. Early evening, you got to make the call and it's going to determine the fate of the whole shift. It better be right. So we huddle. All right, all right. Are there any big games going on? How about church meetings? I, I got to get this right, people. Don't hold back on me. I need to know what's going on in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I need to know right now. And finally, I made my call, pulled my steaks from the freezer, and got to work. I was flying. Wasn't going to mess this up. Medium, medium rare. He wants his extra, extra well done. Charcoal style, people. Charcoal style. And we were getting to right around close, and all the steaks were going away. Perfect. Five minutes before close, everything was cool. One minute before close, no more steak. Congrats, y'all. We did it. Then I saw one more family come through the line. Oh, it was the senior regional manager. The dude whose name was on my paychecks. The dude with the crazy temper. The dude who likes to make people cry gave his order and I saw the despair in the line staff we don't have any more steaks pulled he just ordered four of them leadership time I had to take control stay here look happy I went back to the freezer I pulled four steaks they were each as hard as bricks I told the dishwasher to go take a break The instant he ran out of the door, I pushed the steaks inside the industrial dishwasher and waited for them to come out the other side. 90 seconds later, the first one popped out, sparkling clean, dripping wet, and thawed. The other three quickly followed. Where did you hide those? They were in my just-in-case drawer. I cooked them up, medium rare. Garnished them with sprigs of parsley. And we all watched as the server brought the dishes out. It was just a few minutes later when the server said the regional manager wanted to speak with me right away. (sighs) Uh Uh-oh. I wiped down my apron, adjusted my chef's hat, walked into the dining room till I was standing right in front of Mr. Screamer himself. Sir, you wanted to see me? Yeah, yeah. Did you cook this? Yes, sir, I did. But I just wanted to tell you, this was one fantastic steak. Well, I am very, very glad you enjoyed it. Just doing my job. almost over almost and you're about to be sad and blue what's the matter with you don't let despair take over because there are full episodes of snap available right now at snapjudgment.org on itunes on twitter stitcher soundcloud and wherever else gold is given away for free our twitter handle snapjudgment.org facebook snapjudgment snap storytelling is true to the people telling the tales we've dedicated a job episode to those people out there looking for work keep your head up much love from us the show is produced by myself and the hardest working crew in NPR 
with the best balls. Isn't that right, y'all? Who's got the best balls? Who is it? Well, enough about me. Give it up for the Uber director, Mr. Mark Ristich. Something you got, baby. Pat Masidi Miller, production manager in charge of Beatasticness. Assistant to the Assistant Regional Coordinator of Constabulation, Stephanie Fu. Community Investment Liaison, Anna Sussman. Our Corporate Restructuring Division Case Manager is Julia DeWitt. Our Seismic Retrofit Analysis Ombudsman is Renzo Gorio. Jamie DeWolf is our Clandestine Special Projects Implementation Consultant. And of course, our radio graphics visual continuity developer is Will Arena. All the energy you want, all the service you need. Snap break! Snap break! Snap, snap, snap. Judgment. Did you ever have a job where someone did something that was so specialized and rarefied that no one else on the team understood what was going on? Well, don't worry about the blue light in the back room. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Don't ask and they will not tell. Much love to the CPB. You can try to shut them up. You can try to silence them, but you speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. You speaks.org. PRX, the public radio exchange. Putting the public in public media, whether the public likes it or not. PRX.org. Even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could get one of those jobs with a big corner office on the top floor with a beautiful view of the bay. You can enjoy your view of the bay with the birds and the boats and still harbor a secret. A secret that every single day you pull a wrapped box from your ebony antique desk and inside that box there lives a bowl. And that bowl, each and every day, demands you place a little piece of your soul inside, or else the corner office in the sky goes away. This could happen. It's happened to people I know. You could live through the entire scheme and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. Job one and everybody up on it, you know we get the job done. 